welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change. Courage to change the things I can. The wisdom to know the difference. Thy will, not mine, be done. Okay, we are up to the second meeting of the 12-step workshop. My name is Chaim, and I am a recovering sexaholic. And God has given me the gift of sobriety through working this program for 12 years, 7 months, and 18 days, one day at a time. And for that, I'm truly, truly grateful. Um, I'll start off by, by beginning that Somewhere it says in the reading, I forgot where, but depending on how, on how strong and how good we do step one, that's going to be the, the, the level and the greatness of our recovery. It's all dependent on step one. As we explained in the first workshop, if you go into doctor and you, you really lie to him or you lie to yourself and you say you have a headache when really it's cancer, he'll give you some Tylenol and tell you to rest up. But I know myself that this disease of sexaholism is even worse than cancer. <clears throat> cancer, when you're sick with it, you sometimes feel the pain and the disease, and it doesn't lie to you. You take an MRI, you go to the doctor, it shows you what it is, you know what you need to do. And it's very clear, if you don't take your medication, you're a dead duck. With our disease of sexaholism, I found it's, it, it's, it's, it's worse because the disease of sexualism constantly lies to me that it's not that bad. See, look, I didn't check that girl out. See, I didn't act out. See, it's, it's not as hard as I thought it's going to be. See, there are times I could control it. I'm not even in the mood of sex. You know what I mean? There's so many lies that, that I therefore build a foundation in recovery of quicksand. I come into recovery, and I've seen this over the 13 years of me being here a lot. There's two groups. There's one group of people that come into recovery, and they hear, the new guy comes in, and he hears from one group of recovery that this is cancer, this is deadly, this is a disease, you're going to die from this. And the guy gets very scared, and he's like, no, this is not for me. Then he sees the other group of guys who are like, you can take it easy, you can take it relaxed, it's not so difficult, you come to one or two meetings, you could stay sober, it somehow does work, and that also doesn't work. And there's a lot of that going on in our fellowship. And then we try to find the medium guy who's really not here or not there. He takes it serious, but doesn't take it serious, and, and it doesn't work. So the importance of this workshop is really for each individual to make his own decision. Is he a full-blown sexaholic or not? And how much medication does he need? It's not what Chaim decides for himself. It's not what Chaim thinks, what he learned over the 13 years. It's not about me whatsoever. It's not about how I convince you that you're a sexaholic. I can't convince anybody. The disease is much greater than my convincing. Every person should take an inventory. On the coin it says, to thy own self be true. You have to for once in your life look in the mirror and say, how sick am I? How much medication do I really need to combat this disease? Does one phone call a day really work for me? Does one meeting a week really work? Does one meeting a month really work? What is my disease? And is this really a disease? So that's really what I want to talk about, continuation of, of, of last week, is for once and for all is how much work do I need to put into recovery really to recover? And um, I guess the best way of really starting is why do we call this recovery? What are we recovering from? What, what am I recovering from? 
like what took place? What was so bad? And for me, I could say my story, what I'm recovering from is a, is a disease that is fatal. I remember when I was about 12 years old, a friend of mine in school told me, let's go to the corner store. I, I heard that they sell pictures of naked women and let's check it out. And I went to a stand with him on the corner of a certain street in Brooklyn. And we both walked over to that stand. I'll never forget it. And uh, the guy behind the counter started to scream at us, boys, get away from there, get away from there. It was obviously an adult, adult stand with covers in front of all the, the nude and rated X um, uh, magazines. In those days, there were magazines though. And my friend went running and I stayed. I'll never forget that. Like he ran and I stayed. The guy had to come around behind the counter to yell and scream at me to get away until I left. I still remember I left, I stood there waiting for him to walk to the back of the store and I went back to have him yell at me again and the next day I came back and I was a daily customer being yelled at. Until I so badly needed my disease and my drug, I convinced the guy who's yelling at me to sell me these magazines. So much so that I convinced him to sell me the, what were those things called in those days? The, those, the VCRs, those big things, that I convinced him to sell me the videos of it. I used to hide it in my um, Teflon bag, okay? And that was basically my, my story. Why is that so relevant? If I don't get into my head, Chaim, you are different than the regular person, your recovery is not gonna be different than the regular person. Everybody needs to have a place where they can look back to, 10 stories, five stories, that show that they're powerless. I didn't have a choice whether to stay there or not. Not. I was fighting for my life. I needed to see more. Because the literature taught me that the phenomenon of craving starts, that not even an act of God could stop it. When I take lust into my system, there is such an allergic reality that even though I get bad breath from it, and even though my stomach hurts after masturbating once or twice, and even though I feel sick to the core, and even though I'm waking up at three o'clock in the morning and I know I have a wife and children, and even though, though I know in my heart I shouldn't be doing this and I actually don't want to do it, I can't stop. Not because I'm bad, not because I don't want to, not because I don't love my wife, but there's a phenomenon of craving that started that only, that not even, sorry, that not even an act of God could stop. Like we said in AA, they say, you know, God is so powerful, he can knock the bottle of booze out of my mouth right before I'm about to, to guzzle it. But chances are, if I, picked up, if I went to the store and I paid for the bottle and I took off the, the cover and I put it to my mouth, chances are at that moment God will knock it off. He could, but chances are he won't. If I took all the significant actions of lust into my body, the chances are I just won't stop. Yeah, but I came to a meeting. I shared it with my sponsor. I did step work on it. I did everything I was supposed to do. I even went to three meetings a day. You hear there's so much in, in our group. I can't stop. It's not your fault, you, you can't. That's what the literature says. That's the difference between me and the other person. I remember so many times being at a wedding, I think we could all relate to this, where it's like I'm going to the, to the separation, you know, to, to find my wife, and I'm standing there, and it's like three, four minutes, and I found her, but I'm still standing there. And I know inside of me I'm different than the guy next to me looking for his wife. You see that girl walking down the street and you know everybody's checking her out. But you intuitively know you're checking her out just in a different way. You might even be checking out that girl a week later in your head. 
I went to rehab um, three years ago for a week on trauma, and there was a girl there that caught my eye. When I think about going back to that facility for more trauma work, I think about she's going to be there. I got news for you. She's not going to be there. In my head, I am powerless over that belief. And there's nothing I can do about it. Nothing. If I decide in my head I'm supposed to have sex with my wife, and she doesn't want to give me sex, in my brain, there's not a hate towards her. There's a murdered passion inside of me that I married the wrong girl. Not because I really think I married the wrong girl. Not because she's not, all of a sudden became ugly. Not all of a sudden, I need to convince myself in a such a deep way because there's a phenomenon of craving that started that nothing could stop it. And that's why the program says progressive victory over lust. It's not about staying sexually sober. And I think a lot of us can't get sober because it's not a program of progressive victory over lust. It's a program that my acting out made my life unmanageable. Listen to this, this is key. My acting out brought my wife to hell. Brought my life to hell. Not my lusting. My lusting I still need to do because if I don't lust, I don't feel comfortable. So I'm gonna still check that girl out. I'm gonna still do all these different things. I could still click on the computer I could still go on to YouTube to just check out what's on the side. I'm not watching it. It just comes up automatically. I could read novels that have lust in it. It's not a problem. What makes my life unmanageable, I think, is my acting out. The literature says no. It's a program of progressive victory over lust. I don't come here to stay sober, primarily, only to stay sober. I come here to get lust-free sobriety. Because if not, it sucks. If not, it's hell. And yet, there are times I take actions of lust. That's the humility of this program. And when those actions of lust comes, I, if I was drenched, drenched, in, when I was, if I was drenched into recovery, so then what I found for myself is, it's like a spark that hits water, and it bounces right off. If I'm not drenched into recovery, but I'm living a lust land type of sobriety, then this spark hits me and ignites me. And it just turns me into a blazing flame of energy for more lust. So if you want to know really where you're holding in recovery, this is a good litmus test. If you get hit by lust and you all of a sudden just go from one to a hundred, that means you're not drenched into recovery. I get hit by lust all the time. I even every once in a while take a, a small action of lust. I'll look a second time. It's a BS thing in recovery. I didn't look a second time, but I took a significant, very long first look, <laughs> which I tend to do. I say this over all the time. I was once in a bagel store in Lakewood, and there was this pretty girl uh, at the end of the entire store. And um, I was in early recovery. I was fuming that I married my wife. I was really angry about the fact that, that this was the girl for the rest of my life, and there's no other girl. I couldn't get over the concept, like, there is no other girl I would ever have sex with. That's what recovery told me. It's like, that's not why I came to recovery. <laughs> like, I tried to put my life together here. Like, this is not, like, and I'm in that, that bagel store, and I'm checking out the girl, not checking her, checking her out, and then the girl turns around, and then she waves at me. It's my wife. <laughs> why is that story so significant? when I'm in lust land, I don't even know who's who. I don't know anything. I am nuts. I don't have a choice. I said this over also so many times. 
I recently went to a restaurant with my wife to go out to eat, and we had a beautiful time. And as we're leaving the restaurant, I'm sober for over 10 years. That girl walked into the restaurant. And after like 10 seconds, my wife looks at me and says, Chaim, hello. Hey, hi. I'm like, what? She goes, that's not how you check out a girl. Like, are you stupid? Roll your eyes towards the girl. Don't sit there like stare at her like, <laughs> But it hit me. It hit me, I'm powerless. I don't have a choice to be normal. Now my disease convinces me all the time that yeah, you are only with the hottest girls and the prettiest and you only did BS. What I did was is watching porn with dogs. That's what I end up doing. What ended up being is I was in an adult bookshop where this elderly, elderly, very overweight, fat guy walked into my booth and I was powerless to tell him to leave. What I did was driving down the nine till I realized that basically if I drive any further, there's no more nine left. And I didn't know where I was going to look for, what I was looking for. I ended up finding myself in a mosque because green lights at one o'clock in the morning seemed, no, it wasn't one o'clock. It was after work. It was seven o'clock, seven o'clock. It didn't even have to be one o'clock in the morning. Seven o'clock seemed very attractive. It seemed like that's a place where porn stars hang out. I don't know why. It's not a place for a Jewish boy. That I know. I want to take this one step further, and I think this is crux to the entire program. And I'll make everybody's program much easier if you believe in this concept. Not only the concept of the disease motto, but the concept, and not only the concept of the lust is our problem, but what did the lust and what did the disease do to us? See, when I'm, you know, I have, I have a teenage daughter now, like, um, how old is she? She's like 14, 15 years old. When she's at the age of looking for a boy to marry, right? You check out the history of the boy. You want to know what type of boy he is. Why is the history relevant? Why do we care what the guy was busy with for the last 22 years of his life? Right now, is he a good boy? The second. Is he learning? Is he not? Is he, does he have uh, good, good values? Doesn't he? Why do I care what he did for 22 years? The answer is, what took place in those 22 years make up his psyche his logic, his brain waves, his emotional stability, his mental capacity, his awareness, his sensitivity, his care, his ability to engage in other people, his ability to engage in a conversation. What a person does transforms that individual to make that person who he is. It's a very simple logical thing, right? A guy wants to become a lawyer, he has to go to school for eight years. Eight years makes him a lawyer. Four to eight years make him a doctor. You can't just, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer. There's a tremendous amount of work that goes into it. What makes Chaim a sexaholic? It took a lot of work. It's not the regular guy as a teenager just pulled down his pants and masturbated. What made Chaim a sexaholic is thousands of hours of pornography. So imagine you're looking for a match for your daughter and I'm the candidate. Thousands of hours of looking at naked women in all different positions that the human eye shouldn't see. Horse sex, dog sex. Other things that, since I'm being recorded, I will not say. Talk about fantasy. You know, when you talk about a great person, right, when they're not in actual work, their brain goes to fantasy of evolution, of creation, of building a business, of family life, of, of learning, of social work, of helping the community, right? My brain 
for about 20 years, automatically an enormous amount of time went to fantasy of insanity. Even when I'm talking to you, my brain could go to fantasy. Even when you think I'm here, I'm really there. What does that create? That creates a sexaholic. The adrenaline and the rush and the sweating, the body giving off vibes of craziness on the way to a massage parlor, meeting a girl, a strip club. That creates waves in the body, in, the ment- in our brains. Our equilibrium goes off. You know why this is so significant? Because if I believe in this, I become much more humble to follow the direction of somebody who stayed sober for a significant amount of time and is putting his life in order. But if I just think, listen, you know, I acted out and period, meaning I have a real life and everything else is good, there's a portion of it, let's call it 8%, that had some powerlessness and unmanageability. And I'll even buy into that motto of, of the doctor's opinion that that lust is the problem and that's an, that it is an allergy. And if you touch it, you're gonna explode. I'll buy into that. But then you're gonna work a program at 8%. But if I believe in my heart of hearts that checking out a woman creates, when I went to, when I went to um, rehab for that week, they told me, the professionals over there, when you engage in sexual activities that is not correct for the human brain, it takes away healthy, I don't know the terminology, but basically healthy brain cells. It's very simple. If you put in yourself unhealthiness, it gets rid of healthiness. If you put in yourself extreme healthiness, it gets rid of unhealthiness. And that makes sense for our program. You know how much healthiness I need? <coughs> I've been watching porn since the age of nine and I couldn't put it down to the age of 27. I mean, if you wanna know how unhealthy we really are, think how hard it is to get sober. Why is it so hard? Why are we powerless, which means 100% powerless, not 98%, why is it so difficult? Why can't I just make a decision to turn my will and my life over to God and not lust today. Why can't, why doesn't it work? I get this from a lot of people. Why can't I just go to one meeting a day? Why is it that I have a beautiful marriage, I'm sexually sober, I went to thousands of meetings, 25 J, 20 JSSs, 11 conventions, I take my wife and children to Florida, I'm in a hotel, I'm living the life that everybody wishes, and I'm sober for nine years, Nine years it was, and I'm downstairs looking for a woman to have a cigarette with. My excuse to have a cigarette with, that's what I want. Why is my brain producing, I have everything you say, like if I had the money, if I was living the life of of the big guys, let's call it, I'm living it, I'm doing it. Where's the pull coming from? If you have a damaged brain as a result of everything you've done, and like the example we gave, a cucumber becomes a pickle, doesn't become a cucumber again, I'm damaged. This is who I am. To that level is the level of the recovery that I need. So let's be honest. Let's be honest. The phenomenon of craving hits, I become paralyzed. I take the action of lust. It produces guilt. It produces shame. It produces self-hatred. You know that feeling of self-hatred? Like while you're doing it, you just want to shred your skin. You're like, just stop. You know if you go a little further, you're going to actually masturbate. And you're like, so just stop now. And you're like... No, I effed this whole thing already. I might as well go further. No, you're stupid. Just stop. 
You know when you're in loss and you're like, oh my God, if I go any further, I'm going to actually see nudity and I know I'm screwed if I do that. <laughs> Turn around the car and you can't. Produces self-hatred. Produces a feeling of emptiness, a feeling of loneliness. By raise of hands, who, who really legitimately thought of suicide in that process of acting out? Like it just flashed in their head. Like the feeling of like, I wish I could just like take my life. We're a healthy bunch. <laughs> Who had that feeling of self-hatred raise your hand? Like real self-hatred. A feeling of loneliness. A feeling of emptiness. A feeling of, I wish I just didn't exist. I wish this could end. So we come to meetings, I'm feeling, I'm feeling grateful, of course, right? I'm feeling grateful, it's like a key thing you say here, I'm feeling grateful, and then I, I love the gifts of what sobriety has been giving me the last 24 hours, and inside I feel like shit, and I'm scared to say it to anyone, because I took that action I lost, like if I had a choice to take it. The reason why people can't share in the meetings that they took an action I lost because they don't believe they're powerless. They think they had a choice to take it or not. If, if you don't have a choice to do something, why are you beating yourself up about it? You have a choice to pick recovery. But you didn't have a choice whether to take that action or loss, you were powerless. Now don't try this at home. Don't cheat on your wife and go, I was powerless. <laughs> but between me and you and the lamppost, you know you can't, you don't have a choice. So think about it. A life of pornography, a life of lust, a life of sex, which produce self-hatred, guilt, remorse, emptiness. And the only way to stop and to be free of it was to dig a deeper hellhole. It's the only thing I knew how to do. In early recovery, my wife was crying to me. We're about to have a baby. Just don't act out during the next two months. <coughs> she was in her, she was giving birth in like six weeks after she found disclosure. And she begged me, just don't act out. And you know, I just need a husband physically. And six days after she had the baby, I went to a strip club and a massage parlor. And I'll never forget walking out of that massage parlor with that feeling inside of my stomach, I still remember I saw a cop car like two blocks down. And I, in those days, I, you still had to turn the car on. You know what I mean? And, um, and there was the feeling I grabbed the wheels and I just wanted to floor the car right into the cop car. I would be better off dead because I cannot stop. My wife told me, if you act out, you're not coming to the birth of the child. Recovery told me if you stay sober, you will be there by the birth of your child. Just don't argue with your wife whether you're gonna be there or not. I listened to recovery and I stayed sober. I was there by the birth. It was one of the happiest days of my life. I'm staying sober. I was sober then like 46 days. And then my stomach hurt one night and I was supposed to play basketball. And I thought it was basketball's fault that I couldn't play because my stomach hurt. And I went to a strip club, a massage parlor. Not because I wanted to. I didn't have a choice. And at that point, I started to agree with this disease model and this belief that this program has something that could help me and save me. Only if I really truly believe that lust is my problem and if I truly believe that the problem out of all this acting out made my life unmanageable and put me in a state of mind of insanity, like it says in the reading, we don't know the difference between right and wrong. We don't have the freedom to choose, not only in lust. It makes our life crazy. And it gets a little bit confusing because on one hand, a lot of us kept up a good facade. For me, I was learning all day and all night other than acting out. 
I was either acting out or I was learning. So the pain was enormous because I was being ripped apart. On one hand, I'm really a religious guy. On the other hand, I'm really acting out terribly. But yet I'm holding down a decent life. I have three children. I'm living a normal life. I'm respected in the community. Tons of friends. Very popular guy. Everybody likes me. I'm a ball player. I'm with it. I'm normal. I didn't turn into a pumpkin by acting out. Like a lot of people who stay in their addiction till the age of 60, 70 actually become that way. That wasn't my story. I'm holding down two things. So what are you telling me I'm unmanageable? Why are you saying my life is crazy? It took pen to paper for me to write down on a piece of paper and to see directly, oh my God, these are the things I'm doing. The fantasies I still have, the thought processes that still go on to my, into my brain. And I needed the program and you guys to teach me that even though it makes my life unmanageable, and even though lust is the problem, and even though this produced all the self-hatred, and even though it messed everything up, there's an absolute definite solution here that's even more powerful than my step one. And yes, there were times that I fell, and yes, there were times I took significant actions, and yes, there were times that I needed to share with my sponsor, but the end of the game is, how many people could walk around and say that they're sober for 12 and a half years? And the way that they happened is, measure for measure. I worked a program stronger than I worked my lust and acting out. So I put everything on the side and I just killed myself for recovery. Just killed myself. And what we're gonna continue to work on is exactly how and what are the tools and what is the reasons behind our acting out. And what do we need to do to get to a place where when I get triggered, I don't crumble. Where I can look at lust in the eyes and stand free. Imagine if you could actually get that gift of being able to look at lust in the eyes and stand free. Be able to see a trigger and say, it's not what I want. Be able to laugh at lust. Be able to get triggered and be okay. Learning tools of how we combat this disease. So next week, is, that's exactly what I want to sh- talk about, is the significance and the importance And it ties into step two significantly of coming to believe that there is something out there that even though this disease is a hellhole and even though this is a shame-based disease and even though this is is a problem disease and even though it makes my life unmanageable, there is solutions. I just realized, one second, next week, I think we said we wanted to do a shame meeting. I know, but somebody... Whatever. People I'm talking to said I should rather talk about this topic this week and next week we should do, we should do the, the shame disease. So I'm going to end my talk over here. Next week what we're going to do is, is simply a real shame um, a meeting. Getting rid of shame. Okay, getting rid of shame. Thank you. Which basically that means is let's put ourselves out there. If you're holding on to anything, if there's something that you're scared to share, it's gonna, this is going to be the place to share it. If there's something holding you back from recovery that you're scared to talk about, this is the place to talk about it. If there's anything that's on your mind, if you've been around for a long time and it's not working, if you just knew or if you just came back, this is the time to talk about what is holding you back. I've spoken to people that you'll be shocked what's holding people back. It has nothing to do with this disease. It has to do with their image in the community. It has to do with their finances. It has to do with their wife. It has to do with their children. It's it's crazy that our disease latches onto anything to keep me in a place of staying, acting out. So next week is going to be a meeting on getting rid of shame. Then we're going to have a meeting on the solutions in step two. What does it mean come to believe? And we could actually walk happy, joyous, and free. I never dreamt, and I'll end off with this statement, that I could actually go to a beach. I never dreamt. I'm not talking religious-wise. I'm talking sober-wise. I never dreamt I could do that. And when people told it to me, that one day you're going to be able to, I laughed at them. I guess you don't know the disease model. I guess you're not really a sexaholic. I, all, 
you, we could actually recoil from this disease. We could actually live a happy and joyous life. So with that, we'll open up the, the floor for questions. Um, you are being recorded, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to share. Okay. Mech. <laughs> Okay, so the question, just to repeat the question for the recording, the question is, I kept on saying that I didn't have a choice. I am powerless, that's what the literature says, and I didn't have a choice. And the question is, who said? Maybe I did. Maybe I did. Why, why are we so convinced that we had a choice? Which is one of the most honest and brutal questions of this program. Which I think, in everybody's conscience, there's a little piece of that voice that's around. I'll be honest with you, even me giving the workshop and talking about it, and talking about it for 12 and a half years, there's a little piece. Me and Shaul talk about this all the time. Little voice in the back of our heads. You know, maybe this is all a hoax. This is an easy way out. Had to maybe stay with the wife and maybe had to like, you know, like give ourselves uh, an excuse for all the insanity. There's two answers that, that comes up for me. The one answer that comes up for me <coughs> Time will give you that answer. Simply by just coming to meetings and sticking around and staying sober and seeing in sobriety with all the recovery and with everything that at certain points you have no problem to atom bomb everything to smithereens. You will feel a, such a powerlessness Sticking around programs, speaking to people where you're telling the guy, buddy, if you go left, you're a dead man. So go right. And the guy says, no. And you're like, what? You're on the phone with me. I'm telling you, you're about to blow up your life. You're retarded. Your wife's going to kick you out. No. And you're going to start realizing that was you. We can't see ourselves. I don't see how crazy I was. I needed a drug addict, alcoholic, sexaholic who would roll on the floors of drug houses to look at me and say, Chaim, you're one of the sickest people I ever met in recovery. What do you mean? In early recovery, I was coming with my hat and jacket to meetings. <laughs> or a sweatshirt. <laughs> me? I'm from the sickest guy. I couldn't see that in myself. And I learned in recovery the reason I couldn't see it is because I need my drug. And this is the second point. If I admit I am powerless over sex and lust, I don't have a right to sex and lust anymore. Again, if I admit that I have no right for sex and lust, and I am absolutely 100% powerless over it, then I don't have a right to do it anymore. I'm not like the regular guy that could check out the girl. The regular guy could. So what I do is I convince myself I'm not even powerless over sex and lust in order to hold on to my disease of sex and lust. That will give you and me, Mech, permission to go sex and lust. Because I'm not powerless. So if I'm not powerless, so I'm going to have power and I'm going to make a decision not to lust. But I am powerless. So now I lost it. Oh, but I was powerless, so that's why I lusted. You know what I just got away with? Lusting. Did anybody not get that? You got that? Felt a little like who's on first, what's on second. Right, very good. Right. But that's really what it is. So there's two answers. The first one is you stick around and you will feel. Yeah. If I admit that I am a sexaholic and a lustaholic, I do not, I appreciate your honesty, I don't have to lust anymore. I have tools 
that if I work the tools, I actually won't lust in sex. But if I convince myself, no, I'm not powerless, and I walk out of here, and I have 20% willpower, 3% willpower not to lust. So when I get triggered, you know what I pick up? Not the 97% that I learned that was powerless. I pick up the 3%, because it can't be I'm powerless 100%. What does that mean? We learned the Torah, you know, Barassi Sahara, all the things we learned in our Jewish education. So instead, I hold on to that 3%, and I did get triggered. The phenomenon of craving started. Between me and you, you have no choice. You have to check her out now, or you have to continue clicking. But you're going to pick up that willpower now of 3%. And with that 3%, you're going to try not to lust. And what ends up happening, because you're powerless, you're going to lust. So really you gave yourself an excuse of why to lust and how to lust. And then in order to not feel guilty and shame, you come back to the program and say, I was powerless, so I lusted. You didn't believe you were powerless before you lusted. There's nobody that goes, I know for myself in my years in recovery, when I go onto YouTube, right? Which let's call it for what it is. YouTube is not meant for a sexaholic. <laughs> like who are you fooling? It's just not meant there. It's like an alcoholic going into a store that sells... 80% alcohol. But they have bagels there also, by the way. And he's going in there for the bagels. First of all, the alcoholic is not going into the store for the bagels. Let's, who are you fooling? YouTube is not meant for sexaholics. When I'm going there, do I feel 100% powerless? No, I feel I could control. I'm going to YouTube now, I'm watching MBD. From there, I'm watching... And then... Nobody's wearing clothing somehow, <laughs> right? But the initial thought is I'm powerful. The initial thought is not that, that I'm powerless. If I believed in the fiber of my being, one of my good friends in recovery lost his sobriety after a few years in recovery. I remember sitting in my office when I got that phone call. I jumped off my desk. I ran down the hallway and I started to punch and hit these lockers. <coughs> Literally, I lost myself, and I remember sitting there, I closed my eyes, and I said, I will never go on YouTube again. There was that feeling of like, if I go on YouTube, I know, eventually, I know that's my, my way out. I just knew it in the fiber of my being. I felt a, such a sense of power. Here's a good friend in recovery. I'm working in recovery with the guy for years and years. Why did the guy act that for? When you feel that powerlessness, you're done. So what we do is convince ourselves, we're 99%, I'll give you 99%, the 1% not. And the answer to go further is, if you stick around and you beg on your hands and knees, it's a gift from God. After this, you can't do more. God, give me the gift of feeling powerless. You hear it all the times in meetings. You could do your part, and then at one point it's God. But you gotta be very careful. Because after everything I spoke about, the sexaholic will say, I guess God didn't give me that gift. We have to go, we'll, we'll talk more. Yes, sir. Same idea, but how do I not use this as an excuse? Like for me, it's like second looks, I feel like it's impossible to keep my head and not, I blame it on curiosity. I just want to see who maybe it's a friend walking by. So the question is, how don't I use the excuse of maybe I'm not powerless? How do I work the program and <clears throat> that I am powerless? How, again, how don't I use the excuse I'm just powerless? So that's why I'm taking these looks. That's why I'm checking people out. I'm powerless. I don't, I don't have a choice. So I'll be honest with you. That's what we all do. I was walking down the hallway with, with Harvey like 10 years ago by a, by a convention. And all the way down the hall, <clears throat> there was a woman walking towards us. And Harvey said, did you surrender her yet? And I said to Harvey, I didn't get a look yet. I didn't know what to surrender. Is it even worth the prayer? <laughs> you know what I mean? And Harvey said at one point, and this is part of what we're gonna talk about in the solution. At one point you are powerless. The phenomenon of craving is there. 
If you pray before, try this out today, everybody. Before walking into a place, saying a prayer, and setting yourself up, it's going to be much easier not to look once you get there. Once you're in the act, you are powerless. You have no power. If you're already in, in that bagel store or you're in that supermarket and there she is with her hair blowing in your head, you know what I mean? Even though she's, she's fuming the same way your wife is fuming about the shopping and everything. And she's willing to think, you're powerless, you're there already, you're done. But these are the solutions that we're going to learn in this workshop of prior to that, using the tools of recovery, it won't have that power over you. And these are a lot of the things that I learned over the 13 years of being in recovery. Nate Saxaholic. Hey. Nate. Hey. Um, you speak a little bit to um, how is the proper way to share that you took an actual lesson. I know you, you mentioned in, the, in your uh, share that people are scared to do it. I feel like sometimes it's not so much about being scared. There's sometimes a feeling of that we have to always share the solution. And we don't know how to. Sound, shouldn't sound like the dumb thing, so what's the correct way to do it? Okay, it's a long conversation. It's, it's, it's a long conversation. I just do want to add to the last comment. It's important to say there's always an excuse for lusting. There's never an excuse to stay sober. Just remember that. There's never an excuse to wake up in the morning and say, oh, of course I'm supposed to go to the meeting. There's 10 reasons for me to go. There's always 10 reasons why not to. There's always 10 reasons why to take an action of lust and why the program doesn't work. There's never a reason why this program works. There's no reason why I'm doing this workshop. Why? There's 10 reasons why I shouldn't. That's our negative inherent belief. In regards to, to, to how to share lust, it's a, it's, it's a topic that needs some talk. To, to, to try to summarize it in, in literally two minutes. What I've found is before sharing it in the meeting, the proper thing to do is share it with my sponsor. It's my humility, calling my sponsor, telling him this is what I did, and being humble and asking him, should I share it in my meeting? The first thing we do is after taking action loss, I got this on lockdown, I know what to do. <laughs> if you knew what to do, you wouldn't have taken the action of loss. If you called your sponsor or other people in recovery, that wouldn't have happened. Call a sponsor, have the humility. This is what I did. What should I do? It's like the guy that takes an action of loss and calls a sponsor and says, so how do I tell this to my wife? You have a loaded gun in your mouth. You're about to blow your brains out and you're worried about how your wife's feelings are going to be when you share with her that you took the action. You have to first take care of yourself. The first thing to do after an action of loss is picking up the phone and calling a sponsor and getting humble and getting rigorously honest and saying it as it is and breaking the shame by talking to the sponsor in very graphic detailed of what exactly it happened. Not I lusted, not I saw nudity. Nudity means nothing. I really don't know what nudity means. I personally don't know what nudity means. I'm being honest with you. Nudity can mean her butt was closed. It means her butt could be open. I'm being honest with you. It's, it, it's, it, if I share with somebody that I saw nudity, the person honestly could think of 20 different things because you all are thinking of what does nudity mean right now, right? And it could be 20 different images. But if I tell you what I saw, I saw the woman with her legs spread out and she was wearing a thong. I told you what it is. It breaks the power. That's, now in your brain, you're visualizing a woman with her legs spread out wearing a thong. Okay, big deal. Big deal. You can let that go. But if I tell you I saw porn, nudity, your brain starts manufacturing pictures and video clips of all the porn and nudity you saw. You're triggering me more. And we got to believe this model, not because I believe it, by the way, but because this is what the old timers told me the way it works. And they managed to stay sober for 30 years. And somehow when I do it, it does actually break the power over it. So with my sponsor, I get very graphic, very detailed, and I get feedback. And if he's telling me you're just dumping all over me and you're triggering the hell out of me, you take the honest feedback from him. But a sponsor's job is to teach the sponsee how he shares it with him nicely and appropriately and respectively. And he first tells him, by the way, I am going to share this so he could prepare himself. I learned as a sponsor to say, God, lend me your ears so I don't get triggered. 
when I say that prayer, most of the time I don't get triggered. If I'm not in the place of hearing it, I say get very graphic and I put down the phone. I let him talk to the chair. I don't have to hear the shit. <clears throat> and when I, every once in a while I go like this, if it sounds like good information, I put it close. No, <laughs> you know, I keep it down and then I say, thank you for sharing. I appreciate it. And then I could analyze myself where I'm holding really in recovery. Do I want to get the shit out of him? Do I want to hear something? I, I know where I'm holding as a sponsor. Am I being spiritual? Did I pray before him? And I could teach this to the guy. You pray before him. God, lend me your mouth. I can't say this over. And then you ask your sponsor, what do I share in the meeting? The meeting place is not for dumping. The meeting place is not to come in and say, okay, I just want to get honest and open with the whole group, and yesterday I just blah, 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 and the next day I just blah, 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 blah. The purpose of the group over here is to get honest and vulnerable, but to get feedback afterwards from people, and that's what they did with me. They sat me down and they said, buddy, you're dumping all over us. That's not, you're not being honest. Being honest is, did you call your sponsor beforehand? Being honest is, did you surrender it beforehand? Being honest is, are you trying to get a little high and buzz by sharing it with the group and some attention? It's work. There's no like quick answer. So this is how you do it and this is the done. It's taking an inventory of yourself and being honest with why are you really sharing it? Are you really trying to surrender? Are you really trying to let it go? Is it really God's will for me to do this? Or not. Got it? That's the, the short of it. The short of it is, do your work beforehand. Okay, we have a great way of closing. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.